Welcome to the Open Source Way. This is our podcast series, SAP's podcast series about the difference that open source can be. In each episode, we'll talk with experts about open source and why they do it the open source way. I'm your host, Carsten Hohager, and in this episode, I'm going to talk to Jack Schuler about Whatcom and probably about many things from back in the days. Because Jack has been in the industry for, let's say, a while. He was and is part of a very long-running compiler project, the Whatcom C and C++ compiler, that is, that was made open source already back in 2002. You never heard of it? You'll find out why you should have, maybe. Today, Jack supports customers by investigating and resolving the tough issues, and he also supports the SQL Anywhere documentation team at SAP. His data say that he has been with SAP for 40 years. I said 40. Let's find out in the course of what's coming how that came about. And in case I may not be able to follow Jack in the depths of technology here, we're also joined by Sebastian Wolf. He's a developer, as opposed to me, and member of the SAP Open Source Program Office. So welcome, Jack, and welcome, Sebastian. Good day. Thank you very much. Hello. Okay, let's start with Jack and Whatcom. Jack, what exactly is Whatcom? So oh, Whatcom is a company that was started in 1981, uh, basically a spinoff from the University of Waterloo. Whatcom is a contraction for Waterloo Computing Systems Limited. That was the official name of the company, but we uh, always refer to it as Whatcom, and our product names use that uh, term. Anyway, 1981, our primary focus was on teaching computer languages. And later, we became interested in databases and started a, a little project called Whatcom SQL. And Whatcom SQL eventually got the uh, attention of an American company called PowerSoft, who merged uh, with us. And a year later, we uh, joined Sybase. Before we go deeper into the history, let's maybe first figure out what exactly was the part of all this that was open sourced in, I think, 2002 it was? Since our, our focus turned to SQL, we decided to divest ourselves of the, the languages, compilers that we had uh, been working on. So primarily that was the Whatcom C, C and C++ compilers and also a, a Fortran compiler. The C++ compiler and the Fortran compilers is what was open sourced in 2002 and that are still around as an open source project, right? Yes, so that's the compilers, uh, linkers, debuggers, editor, all kinds of tools associated with developing software. Now that we've got that down, we can come back to how this all came to life and how you have 40 years at SAP in your bio there. In the late 70s, I was working for the computer systems group at the University of Waterloo, and we were doing research in microcomputers. And our, one of the focuses of the uh, computer systems group was teaching computer languages to students. What kind of languages would that have been in the 1970s, as you just said? I mean, like Python wasn't around yet, I guess. 
There were a few languages. So uh, by uh, 1980, we had developed uh, interpreters for programming languages called APL or BASIC, COBOL, Fortran, and Pascal. So those were, you know, say five five of the popular languages back then. Okay, at least BASIC and Turbo Pascal, I still do remember. Uh, Sebastian, do you know all of the one, the, the named ones? I mean, I've heard of Fortran, but I've only ever seen Pascal and BASIC, I think, in action. In action would be too much, but um, at least uh, I've heard uh, most of the programming languages. APL was uh, completely unknown to me, to be honest. So, um, yeah, that's computer history. What was the specialty of APL, for instance, there? APL was a, a very mathematically oriented language. It operated on vectors. It used a lot of Greek symbols. So one of the interesting things was that you had a totally different keyboard. Back then, you tended to have a plastic overlay that you would set over top of your keyboard that had all these different Greek symbols, Greek-looking symbols that uh, you know were actual operators that did things like, you know, invert a matrix or, you know, rotate or transpose the uh, matrix in some way and, you know, add two things together and that, that kind of thing. And for that, you'd use all kinds of sigmas and phi's and chai's and whatever? Yeah, <laughs> yes, basically. Okay, I would have a hard time figuring out how to get that out of my keyboard. The fun challenge with APL was to write an entire program in one line. So you would proceed from left to right. The, the whole application was written in one line with a lot of symbols. And I mean, it, it wasn't easy to understand or decipher what this program actually did. It's not what you consider well-structured code nowadays, right? <laughs> not at all. Yeah, there's, there's a popular saying, um, it was hard enough to write, it should be as hard enough to read, right? Yeah. Some people still apply that these days in their, uh, in their programs, unfortunately. Okay, so, but that was out of the, the university at Waterloo back in the 70s. I did a little bit of reading there. I think the professor was uh, Wes Graham, who was, uh, who was one of the first ones who kind of saw also that it's important for the industry to invest money into uh, university institutes, right? Yeah, um, Wes was one of the pioneers in computer science and computer, basically computer literacy, getting students access to computers and letting them use computers in their work and learn about computers. So Wes was the head of the computer systems group for which I worked. It was actually primarily through Wes and, and a few other professors that, that, that got us looking into microcomputers as a, a new way of uh, introducing students to computing and a, a way of facilitating the learning of computer languages. And how did this uh, lead to the Whatcom project then? By 1980, we had developed all this software, including uh, Uh, we had developed a, a microcomputer system based on the Motorola 6809 processor. The whole works, uh, basically a, a microcomputer with a bunch of programming languages that it could run in, in an operating system platform that, that it sat on. So one of the nice things about the University of Waterloo, or pioneering things I think at the University of Waterloo is that any intellectual property 
was owned by the professors, the students, uh, staff who developed it. So we were free to take all this hard work that we had done and uh, try to commercialize it. So in 1980, we decided to create a new company called Waterloo Computing Systems Limited, or Watcom, and take all this work that we had done and uh, try to sell it to uh, industry. And uh, one of our first partners or first investors or, or first contracts with uh, Commodore Business Systems. Commodore had developed the PET computer. So we, we showed them how we could take the PET computer, install a second motherboard into the PET computer, and with the flip of a switch, you could uh, switch into a totally different platform that was based on the 6809 processor and have all these programming languages available. And this would be a, a wonderful thing to sell to universities and to high schools even because the machines were fairly inexpensive. So it looked like it was a good business opportunity for, or at least we sold them on, on it as a good business opportunity for Commodore. That Commodore machine by generation uh, or by size, how would that relate to what I had as a kid? I had a C64. Yeah, the C64 was quite small. The Commodore machine had an integrated keyboard and screen. So it's a bit bit bigger, but it's it, it sat on a desktop. It was about the size of a old CRT cathode ray tube monitors that people used to have on their desks. About that size. So light lightweight enough that you could carry it around from one room to the next, but uh, but not much farther. Yeah, yeah, but not a little a little bit heavier than a Commodore 64. What was your first computer, Sebastian? As I said, we had a C64 with like the floppy disk, right in the in the beginning, even a cassette drive for data, I think. Yeah, so um, my personal uh, first computer was was actually an uh, AMD Athlon 500. So it's uh, far far later. Um, so somewhere in the beginning of the 2000s, I suppose. Uh, but well beforehand, of course, I had some some access to, to computers uh, of my my father, and he actually started with uh, a Schneider uh, CPC, or yeah, running with a CPM, if I recall correctly. That was my first interaction with computers. Okay. Before the Commodore sixty four, there was something called the Vic twenty, <laughs> and we had one of those at at home. Okay, so so the business ran in the family, basically. Is that it, or <laughs> no? Uh, I I don't remember. I think uh, I think uh, Vic Twenty came later. After uh, I probably convinced my family that oh, they you know microcomputers are really interesting, and you should try this thing, Vic Twenty. It's very inexpensive and. <laughs> You can play games on it. <laughs> I was just going to say, that was you already, not your father, as in Sebastian's case. Uh, because uh, I think with us, it was my brother who actually got the C64 into the house and even our first gaming console also. You had just said uh, what you've done for the flip over switching of different mainboards in these Commodore computers, taking your IP from Waterloo University into basically a university spin off 
right? And the company is the Waterloo Computer System. So this is where Whatcom comes from. I hadn't figured that one out yet. Now I know. And now how does the C++ compiler story go? The initial software that we had created and convinced uh, Commodore to invest in were all language interpreters. The software was all written in a language. It wasn't C. It was called Whistle, Waterloo Systems Language. So it was kind of like a, a blend of Pascal and C. And um, at some point for the uh, IBM PC, different companies started to come out with C compilers. I think there was one from Borland, from Microsoft. There were yeah, some other small companies that were developing C compilers. And we looked at them and, and looked at the kind of code that were they were generating. And we said, oh, I think we could do better than this. The code we were generating from our whistle compiler was much better. And so we thought, well, why don't we write a C compiler using Whistle? So we did that. We uh, basically got a C compiler going in Whistle, and then we translated that into that Whistle code into C code. So basically bootstrapped our way into having a C compiler that could compile a C compiler. Okay. Where are we in time when you were porting from Whistle to C? 1983, something like that. Okay, so that's the very, very start of the Whatcom compiler then. So we got a C compiler going. Uh, we, we were also had a strong interest in Fortran back then, so we developed a, a Fortran compiler as well. And then C++ was coming on strong, so we developed a C++ compiler. We liked the results that we were getting from our C compiler. We were producing faster code and benchmarks than some of the, the other compilers that were out there. So we decided to turn that into a commercial product. So we started selling it. Uh, we had lots of companies uh, like PC Magazine and Dr. Dobbs back then were doing benchmarks and, and saying, oh, hey, folks, you should check this out. This compiler here is producing tighter, faster code and blowing away the competition. So that's what got a lot of the personal computing world interested in what Wacom was doing. You started in C, you continue to C++, and now you get uh, the commercial world interested in what come. Where are we in time now? I think 84, 85, we were seeing uh, reviews of the code being produced by the compiler. This is the 8088 platform. So this is 16-bit. Uh, Later in the 80s, uh, Intel start, came out with the... Uh, Pentium processors, much more powerful processor. And these were what we call 32-bit processors. So they had a, a different instruction set that was a super, super set of the 16-bit instruction set. And uh, we uh, got convinced by a company called Novell Networks. They were very interested in, that, in us developing a 32-bit a compiler. The incentive was there, provided by Novell. We did it under a contract with them and uh, started developing code generator for the 32-bit platform. That is, as far as I know, very late 80s uh, to be released then the 32-bit compiler, right? 
Okay. And there and there we basically reach a point uh, where things got really interesting to me because from the late 80s uh, into the early and mid 90s um there was a special part of the industry that was very fond of the Whatcom compiler. Um Jack, I hope you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, so the technology that was implemented to run 32-bit applications on the disk operating system, DOS, which was a 16-bit system, was called the DOS extenders. DOS extenders were basically implemented to allow you to run 32-bit applications on a 16-bit DOS platform. And uh, we had companies like uh, Rational that developed a, a DOS extender. That, combined with the fact that we were producing really good code, uh, got the interest of game developers. And so one, one of our very first customers was ID Software. Uh, ID, if you don't know, <laughs> ID is responsible for games like Doom and Quake. It seems that Whatcom was like behind... All my most favorite games of the 90s, so it was Doom, it was Quake, it was Descent, it was Tomb Raider, apparently all based uh, on the Whatcom compiler with their core game engines. I found that really fascinating because, so I had been in contact with Whatcom indirectly without even knowing back then. <laughs> One of the uh, fun things that I, I did with my uh, son when he was very young, I think maybe nine or ten years old, is... He was interested in Doom. I showed him Doom, and he was able to run it on his computer. And I said, here, let me show you something interesting. And I ran what we call the strings tool on the binaries for the Doom game. And it comes out with the string copyright Wacom Systems All right. Inc. <laughs> and uh, it's the only copyright notice that's embedded in, in the game. <laughs> because... Because the game, of course, embeds the C, our C library, and our C library has a copyright message in it. So I used to joke with them, see, that your dad developed this game. but Yeah, <laughs> although I'm not really sure that, uh, that we can broadcast this, that you played Doom with your nine-year-old son. Uh, I think back in the time, it was, at least in Europe, it was indexed. Oh, really? Yeah, it was only Germany. Well, maybe he was ten. I don't know. <laughs> Are you even a gamer yourself, Jack? Well, uh, I would say not really, because I'm I'm really busy. But I have to admit that the only game that I actually ever played seriously was Doom. Doom is a, a game where you you have to uh, uh, progress through many levels to get to the end and. And of course, the more levels you go through, the more challenging it becomes. So it's, I, I don't know if it was because my coworkers were were managing to get all the way to the end, but I was determined that I could, if they could do it, I could do it. And so I did play Doom right to, to the end. <laughs> and I think that that was it for me. I fulfilled all my uh, desire for gaming. Once fulfilled the ambition uh, to take it to the end and then that's it. I don't even know, Sebastian, are you a gamer? I was a gamer, uh, I would say uh, quite a, some time ago. Um, 
And actually, during the, the days when I got my first own computer, I was also very much in the first-person shooter uh, genre, so to say. Um, later on, uh, I switched more to, to strategy games. And uh, yeah, these days, uh, probably similar to Jack, very busy other interests. Now I'm uh, also in my spare time developing myself and uh, not that much uh, in gaming. Same here, by the way. I actually worked for a small games magazine in the second half of the 90s and at that time developed a severe addiction, I would say. Um, and I totally, almost totally quit in the early 2000s. Um, but uh, we had just reached 1990 and the 32-bit compiler there. Uh, how did this all in the end, or how did you in the end from there uh, become SAP? In the early 90s, we, we switched our focus from uh, compilers uh, to the SQL database. Walk, uh, we developed something called Wacom SQL. I think it was uh, somewhere perhaps around the fourth fourth release of the product. Uh, there was a company called PowerSoft that had a a uh, tool called Power Builder that was basically the uh, a tool for developing a client application and Power Builder interface to uh, databases like uh, SQL Server and um, I think what was then uh, Sybase SQL Server became Sybase Adaptive Server and Enterprise. So, so they had this tool that worked with databases, and they thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could not only provide the the tool for developing the database, the front end, but also include a database in the product as well? So they have the complete package, a complete solution. And that's, uh, uh, I guess, one of the motivations for them acquiring Wacom and for us merging with Wacom, or merging with PowerSoft. I think that was like February 94. And by February 95, we were acquired by Sybase. Sybase uh, was interested in our database expertise as well. So SQL Anywhere became a part of the uh, product offerings of Sybase. I think 2010, it was SAP who acquired Sybase. I noticed one thing. I mean, some companies are like gone because of uh, chains of acquisitions. Like, for instance, PowerSoft uh, doesn't exist anymore, but the name PowerBuilder, that's still around, right? Yes. By virtue of the acquisition, Sybase owned uh, Power Builder, and in fact, uh, Power Builder was part of the product offerings for quite a few years. It was sold to a third-party company, and someone else now uh, looks after Power Builder. Yeah, we actually still support the use of Power Builder in our products. So. In the SAP products, that is. Yeah. Yeah, and SAP it seems uh, gave you credit for like almost your entire career. When you now, when now your address book entry says you're 40 years at SAP. Yes, yes. Uh, fortunately, SAP has been around quite a bit longer than uh, 40 years, so <laughs> it's not inconceivable that I started with SAP. But in in truth, I uh, I've only been working 
for SAP for since, I guess, 2010. And as we found out, some products that you may have been involved in have been inherited all through this entire sequence. So uh, that's cool. And I think when we talked before, you said, despite these changes of company names and everything, you never had to move office or only once? Unlike most people who move from one company to the next, they generally move offices and maybe even move to a different city. In my case, I've only ever moved offices uh, basically once from uh, one street in, in near the University of Waterloo into the research park at the university. Most of us at SAP don't even have to change companies to be moved around offices every one or two years. I can't count how many different offices I've had. So it's maximum one to three years, I would say. Absolutely. And by the way, the, the power builder companies, Epion, They basically signed an agreement with SAP uh, about five years ago. And they have taken over responsibility for power builders. Yeah, support and maintenance. How did the Whatcom project uh, continue up to today? As a result of the acquisition by Sybase and our focus on database software, uh, we decided it was time to uh, let the compiler development business go. It was becoming less profitable. Uh, some of the practices of our competitors were somewhat cutthroat, like giving away compilers for free. It's hard to compete against free, no matter how good the quality of your code is. We decided it was time to get out of the compiler business, but we had a lot of fans and the fans didn't want to see the project die. So they offered to take it over and said, why don't you take it open source? And I thought that was an interesting prospect. And so we went ahead and, and did that. Was that already after the SAP acquisition or, or still before? It was while we were part of Sybase. Because I seem to remember it was like in the early 2000s that, that the Whatcom compiler already became open source, right? The announcement was done already back in 2000, uh, already the day when I got my first computer, by the way. Um, and uh, and the, the actual open sourcing uh, was then done a few, a few years later, early 2003. The first public open source release under the special license. That's what our official encyclopedia says, right? I also looked it up in the, uh, in the Perfast repository. So it's, uh, it was early 2003 when it's the, the 101 release, which was basically the, the first public open Whatcom release. And as the open source project, it is still around, right? As the open source project, it's still around, yes. Uh, and there's also quite an interesting thing about this one. There was the, the latest, let's say, official open Whatcom release was 1.9. And there's even a, a community fork, uh, which is uh, open Whatcom 2.0. Um, which, uh, yeah, is, is still actively developed these days. And, um, yeah, that's also one of the reasons why we are talking, um, because the community reached out to us um, to discuss a potential license change um, to simplify the use of OpenWatcom in other open source projects. And, uh, yeah, we are, of course, we can't promise anything right now, but we are actively looking into that with the community. Um, it's still around. And uh, many projects are still using it, uh, even for, for areas which are pretty vital to certain projects uh, and certain areas in the industry. Is it, is it still involved in gaming engines? 
at least when you compile it in DOS and free DOS. So, um, so to to basically make the classic games, I wouldn't say old games, the classic games run uh, in a, a free DOS environment. And free DOS itself, if I recall correctly, it's still there, still around, and still vital for the. Um, okay, but 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 probably not for the newer games anymore, who all rely on the on the levels above uh, Microsoft Windows graphic engines and so on, right? That's at least what I know. Why do you have to change the license? Uh, is it it's some kind of older license, or what's the problem? It it is an open source license. It's an actually Sybase public open source license, and uh, it's uh, it has quite some similarities with uh, popular copyleft uh, licenses. That means once you change the source code, once you do anything with the source code, you need to republish it under the same license. Um, but uh, there are also some some downsides to these licenses, which pretty much makes it incompatible with other projects, and uh, which also leads to the fact that popular distributions such as Debian or Fedora uh, don't allow uh, packages and projects that are compiled or that are using uh, tools with uh, this particular license. That's because Jack put this line in there that uh, made him able to demonstrate to his son uh, that he's made this, that you can always re-engineer how has this been compiled. I get it. I get it. Um, right. Um, it's still around, but you're not involved anymore, Jack. That's correct. <laughs> My son has... Uh shown me that the interest in Doom continues to this day. Uh, I, I, he told me once, so there's something, I, I don't know, maybe 60 or so variations on, on the game now that have been published. And he, <laughs> about a year ago, he pub he purchased the entire Doom suite of, of games, and <laughs> and he still likes to play it, so... It's quite amazing that this particular game, Doom, has survived uh, in popularity all these all these years, despite uh, uh, the, the the really poor resolution graphics that <laughs> that it exhibits. I think it more or less founded the genre of the first-person shooter. I don't know if there was anything like it before. No, I think you're right. There may have been feeble attempts at something like it, but it, I think it was the first that totally consequently went in this you look over the barrel of your gun perspective. Jack, uh, you're out of compilers. You're now a database man. Is that right? That's true. Okay. And what does it mean when your Adersbrook entry says you help people with the tough problems? What's an example for a tough problem? Oh, Wow. One of my favorites, it goes back a few years, but a customer had an application and, and they actually had a reproducible, uh, which is always great. It's always great to have something that will reproduce the problem. Though the only issue with this reproducible was that it had to run up to three weeks before the bug might, sh might show. And Believe it or not, trying to get an application to keep running on your computer when there's things like you know, IT wants to reboot your computer <laughs> and you, you come back in the morning after two weeks of this application running, you find, what happened here? Somebody who rebooted my computer. 
after two, three weeks, this, this, this bug would show up, right? And they'd say, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I, I, I can confirm that this bug is there now to figure out what causes it. And it, it was very difficult. You had to be, be standing under the right tree and have lightning strike at the, at the right exact time and, and in order to figure this problem out. There's bugs like that that are just, you know, baffling, uh, totally, uh, really difficult to decipher. And you did solve the three-week bug? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Did you get an exception from IT that they wouldn't touch your machine for at least four weeks or something? <laughs> no, I, I don't know how. I, maybe I, I, I disconnected my network cable or something to make sure that I was, I was standalone. I, I don't remember how I, I uh, averted that problem. Sounds like a solution to avoid remote access. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we've been talking for a while now, I, I guess we could probably uh, continue like this for, for at least another hour. And that's why I have a final question. You, having been around the industry for 40 plus years, what are, in front of that background, your main things you want to tell people that enter the industry right now? For me, the computing industry has is, is always been fun first of all and a very interesting occupation as long as it's fun you work at it uh, from someone who's just say starting their own company it requires a lot of hours i i remember the early days of whatcom an 80 hour work week was typical we would work from sunup to sundown and maybe uh, head off to the bar at midnight to close it out and have a drink and say, say, talk about the events of the day and, and then back at it the next morning. Hard work and um, great people to work with. Working with a, a really fantastic team of individuals is, uh, I think, another really important aspect. Yep, I think we can all also see that at SAP. If I'd have to summarize what you said, it's all about people. And as long as you're having fun, it doesn't matter if you don't have the time to sleep, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, then thanks uh, for allowing me to summarize it that way. And uh, thank you for being here today, Jack, and also Sebastian. Thank you for being here today. It was great to have you two here. Thank you all out there for listening to The Open Source Way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it and don't miss the next one. We usually publish every last Wednesday of the month. And you'll find us on OpenSAP and in all regular podcast distributions like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the likes. Thank you again for listening. And Sebastian, Jack, let's all say goodbye together. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>